This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Figuring out how long this war will last and what we should expect to happen. I think the scenario of, of, a, war, of a conflict that goes on for some time, that ebbs and flows, uh, that is unresolved, is, is a very likely scenario. Nick Redman, editor-in-chief and director of analysis at Oxford Analytica. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Two stories this week, the war in Ukraine and the man behind the war, Vladimir Putin. That's our second story. To the war in Ukraine, how does it end? Nick Redman is Oxford Analytica's Director of Analysis and Editor-in-Chief. Dr. Redmond, um, from your vantage point, how do you see this war in Ukraine playing out? I think we have to be careful about making too many uh, easy predictions in that a few months ago it was widely accepted that the war is in something of a stalemate and there was a sense that it was sort of passive or settled, whereas it was a very dynamic stalemate and therefore one that quite easily changed to something more dramatic. The X factor for Ukraine is whether they're going to run out of men um, and supplies. Supplies don't seem to be a problem at the moment with uh, Western governmental support that they enjoy. It was probably very important that Ukraine actually made battlefield gains within the last two months ahead of the European winter. Why? Because we know that it's going to be a tough winter for Europe. And if you were sitting in Paris or Berlin, the argument might have been, why am I freezing for an unwinnable war? So they still might say, why am I freezing? But the unwinnable war no longer looks quite the same. Mm. So I think it's difficult to um, be confident about the shorter-term trajectory. Certainly Ukraine has the upper hand, but we know that they've lost a lot of men uh, retaking Kherson, for instance. Um, And that makes, I I think, the short-term trends, if you like, therefore, I think are are quite, quite difficult to predict with confidence. I think it, however, is worth um, focusing on on Putin's calculus and motives. Um, I think he's he's aware that winter will be a great test for Europe. I think also he calculates, however, that even if West Europeans were to um, uh, ask for a, a pause, uh, Poland would remain in the fight, others would remain in the fight, crucially the United States would. So I suspect in Putin's calculus he is actually wondering whether he has to wait out the Biden administration. Aside from the obvious possible roadblocks to this situation that you mentioned, the winter and then maintaining a steady stream of support for Ukraine, which keeps this war going for them, can Ukraine not win this war 
but not lose at the same time, if that makes any sense. Uh, I was listening to some perhaps contemporaries of yours talking yesterday, and they were saying Ukraine might not win this war. I mean, they may not defeat Russia, but they might not lose. Does, is, there, is, is that an even, even a thing? I think that's a highly credible scenario. Um, that what you see is a continuation more or less of, of what we have now. Um, uh, Ukraine's entire defeat looks um, inconceivable at this point, but it is, of course, contingent on certain factors uh, remaining in, in place. Um, whether Zelensky is willing to accept, say, a Putin ceasefire, we don't know. Um, Ukraine has not recognized the loss of Crimea. Uh, it never recognized the loss of any territory in the east. Um, these are therefore points that it is very difficult to reach any kind of agreement on. I mean, our, our basic problem is we're still looking, we're still in a situation where I, I think the scenario of, of, a war, of a conflict that goes on for some time, that ebbs and flows, uh, that is unresolved is, is a very likely scenario because if you look at the political objectives of both sides, uh, they're still a considerable way apart. Um, Zelensky has arrived at an extraordinary situation within Ukraine's politics as it is since 1991, um, namely that actually he's at the head of a united nation. This has almost never been the case. Uh, if he seeks terms, if he is prepared to offer compromises, the unity that we see in Ukrainian politics could very likely fracture. Uh, that alone is a reason to assume that this is not necessarily going to be a conflict that comes to a conclusion anytime soon. There have been points in this conflict where I felt that it was possible Putin might actually say, OK, for now, I've had enough. Uh, what I currently hold, I will retain. I will offer a ceasefire which would then have put the Ukrainians in quite an awkward position because some of their supporters might have felt that a ceasefire was a, a, a satisfactory or even a desirable thing. Uh, for Zelensky, however, it would have been very difficult uh, because it would have meant, in effect, that he was accepting some of the territorial losses. The point about that Putin move, if he had chosen to go down that route, which he didn't, was it wouldn't have meant, a ceasefire wouldn't have meant political talks. It wouldn't have meant a resolution. And that's because the major Russian interest remains not in pieces of Ukraine, but in all of Ukraine. So by taking territory piece by piece, offering a ceasefire, allowing Russia to go back, rebuild, to test by not acting Western resolve and Western unity, still left open the option for him of coming back again at a later time with a reconstituted military that had learned some of the lessons that it had failed to apply correctly this time in order to go further. Putin has a problem. Ultimately, what he wants to do is to have a Ukraine that is wholly beholden to Moscow. He knows that Ukraine has elections. Every time he is taking eastern or southern Ukrainians out of Ukraine, he is making it more difficult electorally for a pro-Moscow candidate to be elected. So his shorter-term activity, not for the first time in Russia, it's often the case, are working against his longer-term objectives. But the longer-term objective remains. Putin doesn't want pieces of Ukraine. Putin wants all of Ukraine. He wants a Ukraine that is beholden to him. But the way he is operating in this war works against that objective. And it's why the first week of the war was so critical, because the hope was evidently to seize Kiev, to seize Zelensky, and to change the country. 
and what we're seeing now, taking Ukraine piece by piece in a war of attrition and indeed losing some of those pieces as it goes, is definitely not what the plan was and it's working completely against the longer-term objectives that he has. That was Nick Redman, editor-in-chief of Oxford Analytica and director of analysis there. Now to an update on Vladimir Putin. Bill Browder is the CEO of Hermitage Capital, and he's also the head of the global Magnitsky justice campaign. He was Vladimir Putin's number one enemy, and Putin tried essentially on several occasions to get him back in the country. Browder believes he was going to kill him because essentially he's made life pretty miserable for Vladimir Putin. Now he joins us to talk about the situation with Putin and himself as well. Recording in progress. Bill, thank you for joining us again. Um, I want to ask you a question off the bat. We're talking about Russia, Ukraine, and some other issues related to that. But the first thing I want to ask you right off the bat, is Vladimir Putin still after you? We know that there have been significant efforts to get you into Russian custody. Is he still after you? And have you seen any, 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 uh, any, I guess, um, evidence of that lately? Well, so there's a whole, since the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, which freezes assets and bans visas of Russian human rights violators, Putin has put me in his uh, crosshairs. He's been after me um, with death threats, kidnapping threats, arrest warrants, lawsuits, troll farms, um, movies, everything. Um, And that hasn't abated. Uh, Just to give you an example, um, I'm currently being sued by a Russian... Uh, individual named Renat Akhmetshin. Renat Akhmetshin, you may remember, is the um, guy who attended the Trump Tower meeting with Natalia Veselnitskaya in June 9, 2016. He's suing me in Washington, D.C. federal court for calling him a spy or a former spy because I tweeted out an article, um, uh, and, uh, an NBC article, <laughs> saying that. So he didn't sue NBC, he sued me. Um, which is just one of the many, many things, and I just use this in, as an example of uh, uh, of the Russian government's sort of interest in me and, and attack on me. And so I, I don't think anything has changed. Uh, I know they have a lot more enemies, but but um, I'm still top of you know pretty pretty high on the list. Not not I'm, I used to be number one on the list. Vladimir Zelensky is now number one. I think Alexei Navalny is number two, but I think I'm probably solid third place in terms of. Putin really having an axe to grind with me. Well, it's pretty clear you have some some pretty serious security, and, and we're not going to ask about that or talk about that. But uh, what I would like to, to ask about, there was a very dramatic attempt a couple of years ago, uh, I think maybe in Spain, to try to get you in custody. Have you seen anything like that again? Well, um, thankfully, um, uh, I, I've been back to Spain, and they didn't arrest me the last time I was there, and, and I haven't been stopped uh, and any borders. I think that's more to do with the fact that um, Interpol has finally found a way to cut Russia off from putting me on their wanted list. I don't think it's because Russia hasn't wanted to. Um, and and I'm also it, probably from a travel perspective in a better place than I was the four, three or four years ago because Russia is now seen as the evil, an evil empire. And so um, there used to be this kind of, we need to cooperate with Russia type of stuff going on. And a lot of countries didn't want to upset Russia. And they said, they're a sovereign state, a legitimate sovereign state. You know, if they issue a an arrest warrant, we have to honor it. And I think now with the invasion of Ukraine and the bombing and killing of civilians, people in in Europe are a little less 
likely to do that. Well, speaking of where Russia is and, and what the world thinks of Russia, a lot of this understanding has come from Vladimir Putin's actions in Ukraine and just before Ukraine and certainly uh, recently, you know, he, he's on again, off again, talking about using nuclear weapons and uh, and it's not clear what he really thinks. And But you know him pretty well, um, not personally, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, but you know pretty well that um, how, how to kind of figure out what, what's going on with him. And how would you explain to us um, what it is that's going on with Vladimir Putin and his back and forth on nuclear weapons? Well, first of all, I, I would I would tell warn everybody just to completely and absolutely flush down the toilet the transcript of any speech or any article he's ever written. He, there's no truth to anything he's ever said or or written down because he's just a um, a sort of a sociopathic or psychopathic I think a better description con man, um, and 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 we've seen so so much record of him contradicting himself, doing things that he claimed he wasn't going to do, et cetera. So put that just aside. Um, Putin is at war in Ukraine for one very simple reason, which is he's desperately afraid that if he loses power, he'll be arrested, uh, impoverished and killed. And therefore, he's got to stay in power until the end of his natural life. And um, and so how does a dictator stay in power who's been around for 22 years and has stolen almost all the money that the country has accumulated? You start a war. And um, this war that he started um, was had kind of had the, the effect that he wanted it to have, which was for the first few months, uh, his approval rating shot up just like they did in, in previous wars that he started, like in taking Crimea and Eastern Ukraine back in 2014 or Georgia in 2008. Um, but this time around, um, he encountered something which he hadn't really bargained on, which was that the Ukrainians were going to fight back and fight back like it was nobody's business. And and then he also didn't didn't anticipate that the U.S. and the European Union and the U.K. would provide uh, Ukraine with really powerful weapons to fight back. And he didn't anticipate that his army would lose 65,000 troops and another 65,000 unable to uh, go into battle anymore because of injuries and, and uh, prisoner situations and so on. And so now he's in this terrible situation where um, uh, he's losing the war on the battlefield. He's desperate. Um, he's had to go and cross the red line of starting to draft um, uh, males between the ages of 18 and 60. And so now that, that every man in the country is either fleeing in hiding or trying to get out of the draft, and this popularity thing that he was enjoying, I don't think is turning out so well. And mm. so um, he's got to find a way to fix this. And he's he's going to try everything. And and his speech yesterday was really uh, uh, telling because there were sort of two two groups of people he was reaching out to in his speech. One was he was praising uh, the Chinese dictator uh, Xi Jinping, um, talking about how great friends they were because he's hoping to have a you know, the support of the Chinese, which hasn't come through the way he wanted it to. And then he's starting to do this whole Christian values thing, hoping to appeal to um, uh, the far right in the United States, hoping that that will somehow come his way and, and the U.S. will will in some form in the future um, start to object to um, uh, helping the Ukrainians fight their war. Mm. Uh, 
you know, any, everything is on the table for Vladimir sure. Putin, including the use of nuclear weapons. And so yeah. I, I, I know he's a desperate man. He's he doesn't have any any sense of responsibility, so, any compassion, any empathy, anything like that. So, yeah, you know, hard to say how many people believe anything that he says. As you say, we shouldn't. And, you know, there are a lot of people who might have before, but they certainly have seen in the last months that, you know, he certainly is not a very nice man at all. Um, but one thing I want to ask you about, you, you you said that he's concerned about being arrested, impoverished, and, and killed. And one of the things that, you know, I struggle with and a lot of people struggle with is Putin is the most powerful man in, in Russia right now. And it seems as though everybody in his circle and those who are beholden to him are afraid of him. So who, where would this threat to him come? How would he end up in that situation? Who would start this charge or lead this charge to arrest, impoverish, and kill him? Well, he, he's a dictator of a country um, for 22 years. He and the thousand people around him have stolen a trillion dollars, a thousand billion dollars from the Russian state over those 22 years. Um, that trillion dollars should have been spent on healthcare, uh, roads, schools, et cetera, was spent on yachts, private planes, and villas. And uh, and so now uh, uh, he's in a situation where he just doesn't, it's a pressure cooker. He doesn't know when it might explode. And it wouldn't be, you know, some predictable group of people that do, do, do this. It could just be anything. I mean, look at look at what's happening in Iran right now. You know, they the, the religious police kill one um, one woman that they arrest and the whole country is burning. And Putin understands that that that's the kind of stuff that happens in a in a tightly wound dictatorship. And, and that's what he's afraid of. It's not like there's a coup cooking on the horizon he can identify. He just doesn't know where it's going to come from. And all he knows is that he's he's created a it's like a, a it's like a forest full of dry leaves and and it hasn't gotten any rain for months and months and all it takes is one match and the whole thing goes on fire that's what russia is right now and that's what he was afraid of and he wasn't wrong to be afraid of that i mean if he looks at at all the democracies around the world post covid you know boris johnson's not around um uh uh, uh mario draghi is not around um the the israeli president's not around bolsonaro is probably not going to be around and and you know, Donald Trump's not around. All sorts of people in democracies get replaced. And there's the same tendency in non-democracies, except it happens in, more, in a more violent fashion. One last thing. Um, the the war in Ukraine um, and people in Russia, um, you talked a little earlier about troops and Russia running out of troops and Putin trying to take troops. Most of them are ethnic minorities. And you know, that's a sad commentary as well. Uh, but um, based on what you've seen so far, how would you say this war effort, Russia's war against Ukraine is going for Russia? It's going miserably. It's it's a disaster for Russia. It's a total, you know, everything. The, the, so Russia, the state has been hollowed out by corruption for the last 22 years. And that hasn't, it's not like the military avoided that. You know, they have a $70 billion military budget and 80 to 90% of that 70 billion was stolen. And so the planes can't fly because they've sold the spare parts on the MiGs to the Indians. They, um, the, the tanks can't go forward because the uh, soldiers stole the gas out of the tanks. Um, the whole thing is just rotten from top to bottom. And, as re- and, and, and the, the soldiers themselves um, don't have any reason to fight. They don't understand why they're there in the first place. And so the whole thing has been a total disaster. It's a meat grinder for Russian troops. They're going in and getting killed 
left, right, and center. And it's just, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a zero out of 10 um, as far as uh, performance goes. And, um, you know, we all, and it's not just, it's not just the loss of troops and equipment and, and so on. It's the loss of prestige. We, we all thought that Russia was the second most powerful military in the world. Turns out they're probably not even the top 10. I bet the Finns could kick their ass um, in a, a, a one-on-one battle. And, and here they have Ukraine, who, and, and Ukraine was outnumbered and outgunned in, in dramatic proportion, and they're the ones pushing the Russians back. It's really unbelievable. Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital and the head of the global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, what happens after Ukraine? For President Putin, the objective of this ongoing war in Ukraine was since the beginning uh, to remove uh, the Ukrainian government from the power and to uh, to basically to make Ukraine part of uh, imperialistic Russia. Tuli Dinetin is Undersecretary for Defense Policy at Estonia's Ministry of Defense. But we also think that this is only the first step in, in his uh, strategic objectives. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. For nine years, a man terrorized women across the D.C. region. The more the victims resisted, the more violent he became. Breaking into homes and raping his victims before killing a brilliant young scientist in 1998. Then he suddenly stops, leaving police with a lot of clues and one unknown subject. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me for Unknown Subject, Season 3 of WTOP's American Nightmare podcast series, available October 4th on all podcast platforms.